from movie set to multiplex. It's the business of film with James Cameron Wilson. Silent Breed is people! Who are? mercy. Is this the end of Rico? This is Simon Rose. You join us for the business film where I'm in conversation as always with James Cameron Wilson. I'm beginning to realize just how old some of those clips are, James. I mean, we're going to be hearing clips that are nearly 100 years old before too long. Um, but it just goes to show what a rich and varied history cinema has behind you us. Know, do you hmm. know the cinema has now been going for 133 years in one form or another? That's um, pretty impressive. Because um, we're mere children compared to the history of cinema. That is true. And we're not very far off, of course, the centenary of movies with sound. Though, as many people will point out, of course, movies were almost more international before sound was added, because you could watch them wherever you were in the world. It didn't actually matter. Yeah, we're six years away, aren't we? Yes, indeed we are. On the centenary. Indeed we are. But you we've heard nothing a f- yet. A few episodes yet to go, though, before that. So where do we begin this week? With the box office chart? Oh, uh, so nice so. to talk about the fact we have well, a box office is. chart. And you may recollect that last week we were talking about box office records being smashed by I F9, a Fast and Furious 9, which was had the biggest weekend opening since the pandemic began. Mm-hmm. 18 months ago so that was all good however this was never going to be a good week um it hasn't been as sunny as of late but two words that every cinema manager dreads Mm. crept onto the calendar football and wimbledon Mm. yes and well i think 26 million people tuned in to see england beat ukraine over the weekend yeah, but that was only one night, and then... Yeah, but it was Saturday night. Oh, yes, of course, so it's a, lot, a third of the that weekend. That was the big night yeah, of, yeah, the, yeah. of the week, so of course, made a huge difference. So Fast and Furious 9 plummeted. How, how, however, James, this probably didn't happen, but I seem to recall in days gone by, uh, before the pandemic, cinemas would often actually show sporting events. It was a relatively recent thing, but I'm sure we discussed yes, that in the past. True. Yeah. So I'm surprised they didn't do that, unless they felt there was, you know, they it wasn't worth it because they couldn't get enough people in. But you would expect seeing it on a really big screen would have been rather attractive to people. Indeed, I, I must look into that. That's a very good point, Simon. Okay, thank you. But I'm Fast to make and them Furious, yes, it, well, <laughs> it, it did go down fifty-six percent, which is rather sad. Mm. And Peter Rabbit too, the saviour of the British film industry, is just holding strong and refusing to budge from this second spot in fact it's the only film not to drop from the previous frame with a now very respectable 17.4 million pounds mm. in total in the heights is still at number three down 32 percent with a 3.3 million pound total a quiet place part two which as you know i absolutely loved mm. as did most film critics that's still at number four down 29%. And Cruella, which was at number five, is still at five, down 11%. But I think because of the holidays, uh, I think children uh, ch- children films are doing really well at the moment, Peter Rabbit 2 and Cruella mm. being two cases in point. And we have a new film, which is not for children, at number six, 
called Freaky. Oh, yes. I saw a review of this. Mm, intriguing. Well, because I refuse to watch trailers, because I feel that they give too much away. Absolutely with you there. Gosh, I, I mean, I, just an aside, but didn't you love trailers in the day when they teased you and made you oh, want to see a film rather than made you feel you already had seen it? Oh, I could not agree with you more. So I was more than a little surprised by Freaky, not having seen the trailer. I knew that it was starring Vince Vaughan, who I know from such comedies as Swingers, Old School, Dodgeball and Wedding Crashes. So I was um, expecting a body swap comedy after all it takes its title from the jodie foster barbara harris body swap comedy freaky friday in which a mother and daughter find themselves transported into each other's bodies a film that was so successful that they remade it 26 years later with jamie lee curtis and lindsay lohan but freaky is more freaky friday the 13th than well just freaky friday but it is very, very funny. It is also one of those, one of the most horrific films of the year, featuring Vince Vaughn as a serial killer who wears a leather face mask made out of human skin, likely modelled, I suspect, on the brutal murders of Ed Gein, who was the inspiration for such films as The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Silence of the Lambs, and of course, Psycho. And talking of Psycho, let's not forget that Vince Vaughn played Norman Bates in the 1998 remake of Psycho. So maybe I should have known better. I will say, though, that I can't remember an auditorium reverberating so much with laughter since the last lockdown was lifted. And this is largely because the director, Christopher Landon, son of the actor James Landon, uh, who also made the horror comedy Happy Death Day, which I, I thoroughly enjoyed. Mm. He knows how to pitch the balance of gross-out horror with your typical American high school teen comedy. And Vince Vaughn is the perfect actor to play the protagonist here, a vicious, mirthless serial killer dubbed the Butcher of Blissfield, who, com who comes up with inventive ways to dispose of a raft of teenagers whose undoing I will not reveal on a family program. So after the mandatory prologue in which the butcher methodically butchers four teens, uh, four teenagers, the film cuts forward one evening to Thursday the 12th, where we meet our protagonist, one Millie Kessler, played by Catherine Newton, who TV watchers will know from her performance as Abigail Carlson in Big Little Lies with Reese Witherspoon oh, and yes. Nicole Kidman, which I've never seen. I Millie, have. I have. Do you know Catherine Newton? Um, well, I suppose I must do. I can't, can't recall um, from Big Little Lies. It was, it was the more mature actors who I already knew that I was most impressed by. Well, do you um, remember Abigail Carlson? I, no, it's a while since I saw it. I only saw the first three of it. It's a while since I saw it. But no, I can't remember, but I must have seen her. OK, well, she plays Millie, who was a teenager who was having problems at home as well as at school. She lost her father a year ago and her mother has taken to the bottle. While at school, she is picked on for being, well, just meek and agreeable. Mm. Furthermore, her wood class teacher, played by Alan Ruck, whom older listeners will remember from playing Matthew Broderick's best friend in the seminal teen comedy Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah. 
35 years ago. Uh, <laughs> and he's also got it in for Millie. She is one of the world's natural victims. And then after she has done her bit as this school mascot, dressed up as a beaver at the homecoming football game, she finds herself at school alone because her mother has passed out at home and forgotten to pick her up. You would think that such ingredients would be hard to draw laughs from, but believe me, Freaky is very funny in the blackest possible way. Inevitably, Millie becomes the next victim of the butcher who emerges out of the darkness holding an Aztec dagger, which he stole from the mansion in which he created havoc on the previous evening. And having caught up with Millie, he stabs her in the shoulder at the stroke of midnight when their spirits due to a particular alchemy contained within the dagger. Mm. Switch places, and whoosh, the film switches gear. Vince Vaughn is now trapped in the body of a teenage girl, something that initially disgusts him, but which he soon turns to his advantage, because nobody could possibly be afraid of poor little Millie. Meanwhile, the real Millie now looks like the six-foot-six-inch serial killer splashed all over the news and has to convince everybody that she is still, well, vanilla Millie, even if she looks like Vince Vaughn. But even Millie's sister, who happens to be a cop, prefers to shoot first, is unconvinced, and so the farce begins. Much of the fun is seeing Vince Vaughn come to terms with his inner girl, and he is ably supported by a terrific cast of newcomers as the various stock high school types, particularly Misha Oshaovich as Millie's camp best friend, who is a dead ringer for an American Ollie Alexander. And with the butcher now indistinguishable from our sweet heroine, the slaughter continues and is very, very gruesome indeed, aided by the wonders of CGI. So this is essentially Freaky Friday the 13th meets Mean Girls. And I suspect that because today's young audiences have grown up with the realism of what is known as, and I quote, strong bloody gore, they shouldn't be too shocked. Not when there's always a laugh and an in-joke waiting just around the corner. Of course, the body swap genre was given a boost with the enormously successful Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, and its sequel, Jumanji, The Next Level. So I think we need to accept, Simon, that the body swap film is here to stay. Well, oddly enough, I was just thinking about, uh, about whether there had been other um, sex body swap um, films. I just had a quick look, and of course, there's something in The Guardian, the 20 best body swap movies. So you obviously <laughs> realise there are considerably more than that in the past. Um, well, of course, I immediately think you say sex. I think of Lily Tomlin and Steve Martin. Uh, was it all of me? Yes, yes. Gosh. I mean, wow. there have been many. There's another of your lists in gestation there, I'm Judge sure. Reinhold, yes. I, mean, I could go on and on. Yeah, so many, so many. But if they're done well, then they can be very funny. They can. Uh, the, you know, it's the ultimate what-if film. Well, Vince Vaughn is one of those characters who can be terribly mean and frightening, but also very funny. Yes. So he's and, and really Big, good casting. Yeah. And Big was sort of a body swap. I mean, it, wasn't, it was the same body, wasn't it? But it was the same idea. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. They probably had a lot to answer for. Yes, right, James. Time for us to take a quick pause for breath. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This 
is Simon Rose in conversation with James Cameron Wilson as we examine the business of film. So we've been talking about freaky, uh, sort of funny horror film, uh, if that's the best way of describing it, which was number six in the chart. Was that right? It was at number six. And at number seven, we hit the Have the Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, which I thought was <laughs> risible which was at number six, down 33%. I wish it had gone down further. At number eight, we've got The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, which was at number seven, down 24%. At number nine, we have a new release, Ooh. which is Danish. So Denmark has really made a, <laughs> an impression, shall we say. Uh, okay. This was only showing at 130 cinemas. This is another round, which won the Oscar for Best Foreign oh, Language yes. Film with Maz Mickelson as a functioning alcoholic, but with a total of £1,579 average, this is actually the second best screen average on the chart. And although it's not the greatest foreign language film I've ever seen, it's enormous fun. And Mad Mickelson is one of the great screen actors of the world stage, and he's really good company. At number 10, we've got Supernova, which is down 63%. This is the film where Colin Firth uh, goes on a road trip with his partner oh, yes. of 20 years, played by Stanley Tucci, who's suffering from dementia. And it's interesting that this and the father have done so badly. And I was talking about this with the man address, my local multiplex. And she was saying, this is because these films are aimed at the grey pound and the older generation is still very apprehensive uh. about returning to the cinema, which is why films like The Father, which I was surprised how poorly it did, I think is not doing that well. Which <sighs> actually makes I a want, lot of sense. I, want, I suppose that makes some sense. And yet, you know, almost every mature person I know is, is very keen to get out and do things, having been double jabbed. Well, um, I, wonder if, I wonder if it's more that 1930s idea that what people want is out and out entertainment rather than things that are a great deal more serious after the last 15 or something. That's very true because of course the father and supernova are both about dementia. Yes. That's a yes, very so good perhaps point. a reminder of mortality is not necessarily the way you drag people back into cinema when <laughs> that's all they've been thinking about since March 2020. I could be wrong, but I'm sure somebody will analyze it before too long and tell us. Jeff. That's a very good point. Yes. <laughs> anyway, um on to a film way down the list at 22 which was only showing at 114 cinemas, but I've been very keen to watch. It's called French Exit. I have been a fan of Michelle Pfeiffer since she strutted her stuff in the unfairly criticised Grease 2, where she played the, played the insanely desirable pink lady, Stephanie Zanoni, blasting out Cool Rider on the soundtrack. Of course, she went on to exercise her flutes in such films as Hairspray on the soundtrack of Prince of Egypt. And as the chanteuse Susie Diamond in The Fabulous Baker Boys, for which she won the Golden Globe. For her latest film, French Exit, she was nominated for another Golden Globe, but lost out to Rosamund Pike. For a while there, she was even getting a bit of Oscar buzz for French Exit. Here she plays Frances Price, a widowed Manhattan heiress who lives alone with her son, Malcolm played by Lucas Hedges. She talks as if she's in a Henry James novel and lives with her head firmly fixed in the clouds. Malcolm, meanwhile, wanders through life, subsisting on champagne and martinis while balancing a love affair with Susan, Imogen Poots, which he describes as being in a holding pattern. Susan insists that I am trying to fall out of love with you and you really 
do feel her pain. Lucas Hedges has cornered the market in playing emotionally arrested, earnest young men, uh, winning particular acclaim for his performances in Manchester by the Sea and Boy Erase. So perhaps he is perfect for the role of Malcolm. There's also the cat called Small Frank, a little black moggy whose name is explained later on in the film. Mm -hmm. French Exit, directed by Azazel Jacobs, is adapted by Patrick DeWitt from his novel of the same name. And there is a novelettish feel about the film with a pinch of the theatre of the absurd thrown in. It's a really odd piece, destined to get viewers on a head-scratching mission until, in the last third, it starts gaining comic momentum. Michelle Pfeiffer is wonderful. They broke the mould with that one, notes one character. But then everybody in the film is a character with a capital C. And the artifice did begin to get on my nerves after a while. But the premise is not without promise. Like the Rose family in the award-winning sitcom Shit's Creek, Francis and Malcolm discover that their funds have almost dried up and that they can no longer lead a life of such laid-back hedonism. Confronted by her accountant with the facts, she asked him what he expects her to do. What was your plan? He asks her. My plan was to die before the money ran out, but I kept on and kept not dying. So she's forced to tell, she's forced to sell the family silver and everything else, including the Manhattan mansion. Then her good friend Joan comes to the rescue and says that she and Malcolm can stay in her apartment in Paris, a city in which Francis and her late husband had their honeymoon. And quite frankly, Francis doesn't really have any other option. But once in the French capital, she starts tipping everybody outrageously and squandering the money she has accrued from the sale of her husband's assets. And that's all I will say, other than that she manages to smuggle Paul, uh, small Frank into Paris by drugging the cat and slipping him into her carry-on, which I thought was a rather good idea. <laughs> I, I'm not sure when the film is set, but there are, there are no mobile phones, which gives Frances some room to break rules she would be unable to mm. do in today's world. As I say, French Exit is an odd film, neither particularly moving all that funny, although Michelle Pfeiffer is a constant joy to watch. And others in the cast, particularly Valerie Mahaffey as a dithering fellow American widow, desperate for company and a gossip, add to the Greek chorus, respectively marvelling at and condemning of Francis's outrageous behaviour. Okay, that is French Exit with Michelle Pfeiffer, right? I haven't seen her in anything for some time. I know she what has been doing things. I was reading some of the stuff I wrote about her early on, hmm. and the year of her birth was given as 1957 when I first started writing about her. But I now see that she's a year younger, or so her biogs on Wikipedia and IMDb uh, protest. So whatever she age, whatever age she is, she is still looking amazing for a woman ten years her junior, I think. Okay. Um, well, so what else, James? Well, the Tomorrow War, which you can see on Apple. Uh, mm -hmm. Chris McKay made his directorial debut with the computer animated The Lego Batman movie, which was probably more your cup of tea than mine. I did like the, the original Lego. I wasn't quite as keen on all the others. 
Well, on the subject of Lego, uh, Chris Pratt was the voice of Emmett Brikowski in both the Lego movie and its sequel, the Lego movie, to the second part. Now, both Chris McKay and Chris Pratt are united on this $200 million dystopian epic, which features time travel, hordes of aliens, and rather unfortunately, crumbling Miami Tower blocks. Mm. It's available exclusively on Amazon Prime, and considering its budget and its far-flung locales, including Miami, the Dominican Republic, the Bahamas, and the Russian Arctic, it I would have thought it really needs to be seen on the big screen. And in spite of its familiar ingredients, it does have quite an interesting premise. What if you were told that in 30 years' time, the world was going to end unless you formed a global army to combat an enemy from the future? Sadly, the world has not yet proved exactly adept at fighting for its future, even right now in the real world. But the 30 years cutoff date does give our planet some urgency to organize its survival. And in spite of the film's familiar canvas and the cliches, it should speak to an audience today, as in the words of Chris Pratt's science teacher, the one thing the world needs right now are scientists. And so it's really the genome sequencing in a lab that takes center stage, mirroring both our current crisis with a dash of H.G. Wells. But for me, the film's ace card is really Chris Pratt, who is an old-fashioned movie star in that he blends a sort of carefree heroism with a healthy sense of humor, but still has a grounding in reality. I could watch him all day. He plays Dan Forrester, a science teacher, family man, everybody's favorite buddy, and as it turns out, guardian of the galaxy. Having just lost a prestigious position at a prominent research facility, he settles down with his wife, adorable daughter, and a beer in front of the football. And just as a goal is about to be scored, the TV set goes haywire, and a unit of soldiers emerges out of a temporal gateway in the middle of the pitch with a dire warning. Not about the outcome of the the match, but the outcome of our planet, right. explaining that they have popped in from the future and things aren't looking good. In fact, the leader tells the world, once the TV reception has settled down, you are, are our last hope. It seems that the only way to combat this future war is to recruit soldiers from the present day, even though their chances don't look good. And so the entire planet, all the superpowers and every insignificant island, uh, cull their forces to fight a war that hasn't happened yet. And here's the nub. They're looking for combatants who are over 40, as anybody younger may not have been born in the future, had we lost the war with the aliens. I would not call the Tomorrow War wholly original. There is a lot of alien and World War Z Z thrown in there, but it's got some interesting ideas and as the dichotomy of time travel invariably throws up. And yeah, there's a bit of interstellar in there too. It is though very well paced by McKay. Chris Pratt is his usual watchable self and the CGI effects are terrific as one might expect from a $200 million budget film. But I have a question for you, Simon. Mm -hmm. Why is it every alien species in practically every sci-fi film ever made, sounds the same. What is it with that 
guttural, strangulated gurgle they all emit. <laughs> I don't know. Well, they, they all come from the same planet, clearly, James. Well, just, just, just different countries on the planet. I don't know. Uh, I mean, my question to, to a friend this week, talking about films and, and TV, is why is every period movie or TV show, no matter how much effort they put into making it look realistic, why are the cars always gleamingly clean? That's very true. Anyway, I will say I was pleasantly engaged by The Tomorrow War throughout Mm. the film's two hours, 20 minutes running time. (gasps) Right. And I was even rather moved at times with actors like J.K. Simmons and Betty Gilpin thrown into the mix. There are good performances here, too. Uh, It's not a masterpiece, but I enjoyed it for what it was. James, thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with James Cameron Wilson. We'll be back with more Business of Film at the same time next week. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. Is it safe? We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. Nobody puts baby in a corner. <laughs>